welcome to another episode of the Underground Bunker podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, and I'm really thrilled that this week my guest is Karen Presley, somebody who uh, should be well known to the readers of the bunker. Uh, but I'm also very happy that I've kept up on Facebook with you, Karen. We, we, uh, you really run a lively group there, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> you and I have lately have been chatting about Scientology things, haven't we? I know. Well, you're, you're talking about the uh, SWAT group, Scientology whistleblowers, uh, what's the, uh, troublemakers. And uh, right. yeah, you've been doing some great writing, and I, I just couldn't. I mean, I really have been enjoying some of your pieces, but uh, it's been great to go back and forth on that group. Well, that's a that's a lively group, and I always enjoy your reactions because um, you know you know this stuff so well, and you know it uh, you really recognize when something interesting has happened in Scientology. So I'm glad we've been communicating that way. But let's let's also fill in some people who may not be so familiar with who you are. You were in Scientology quite a long time, but you've also been out uh, some time. You've got a big anniversary coming up. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, you know, I was in Scientology from like 80, 81 to 98. So, you know, you're looking at uh, almost two decades there. But I escaped for the third time in 1998. So this year I'm celebrating my 25th anniversary outside of Scientology and also out of the Sea Org. So yeah, it's uh, definitely a milestone year to this year. Congratulations. And uh, so three times, I mean, I've talked to people that it took, mo- why does it take multiple times to get away, <laughs> to get away from this thing? <laughs> I think you know the answer to that, but I'll be glad to tell you my, my personal experiences. I mean, I escaped the first time in 1990, right after uh, Greg and I landed at the International Management Headquarters, known as Golden Era Productions. But I came back because Peter did not want to leave, my then-husband, Peter Schles. I stayed for, you know, we, we toughed it out for another two to three years. I escaped again in 1993. I mean... You know, that was even before the hole was started. But right, right. even prior to the hole, I mean, David Miscavige was, uh, you know, I recognize him in my, you know, as a suppressive person years before I ever finally got out. But honestly, Tony, the only reason I came back was because my husband, Peter Schles, did not want to leave. It's not like I wanted to stay in the Sea Org. Um, I wanted out. I didn't want out of our marriage, but I wanted out of Scientology and out of the Sea Org. So when I came back in 93, which was crazy that I did that, I stayed another five years. And five years, during that five years, I actually, I admit it, in retrospect, I see it now. I didn't then, but I became more radicalized. I move up the ranks in the Sea Org at the Int base. Um, I moved into higher positions. I was doing, I, I held the International Management Public Relations Officer post and worked directly under Guillaume Lesev, the, the Executive Director International. And then I began doing uh, special projects for David and Shelley Miscavige to improve the image of Sea Org members around the world. Because I had a clothing design background, they gave me all these projects to design new clothing and image projects uh, at FLAG. Um, I worked in Australia and Copenhagen, all around the U.S. And I worked directly with David and Shelley on those projects. So that was during those last five years. And it was during those last five years when I was basically traveling around the world that was really eye-opening because I saw the conditions that Sea Org members were working in around the world, living in poverty, working slave hours. And meanwhile, we were at, at in management, we were taking in a good $7 million a week. And when I saw all that, I just couldn't live with it. And uh, Peter was oblivious to it. He 
lived in his music studio. He was like, I see nothing. I know nothing. And he just, he wasn't grappling with the same issues that I was. And the music studio um, was where? Pardon me? And that music studio that he spent time in, where was it? Well, it was at Golden Era Productions. He was, he was a gold musician. Um, So he was at the Int Management base in, in the gold music studio. And, you know, he was there like 24 seven, we hardly ever went home and he didn't have any perspective outside of the music studio. Uh, he also worked directly under David Miscavige's thumb. So he was completely, uh, <laughs> for lack of better words, uh, radicalized and indoctrinated to the max. Um, so he couldn't see or understand anything I was saying in terms of what I saw at Scientology bases around the world and he rejected my claims um, and I you know I had to come to terms with the fact that I had really lost him he was he was gone to me um, and so you know I finally left I escaped in 1998 for the third time and I have and managed when, to stay out <laughs> and when you say escape what did you have to do that time to get out well, each time I literally had to escape, like in the middle of the night, um, you know, sneaking and and this and that. But on the third time, um, I actually planned my escape, and I I literally left the base behind um, uh, the train of buses that would leave the int base every Saturday afternoon after our renovations were over at like 4.30 in the afternoon. And when I got to our birthing, which is which was off, off base, um, I grabbed some clothes, threw them in a laundry basket, and literally made it look like I was going to do my laundry. And I got stopped by a security guard who saw me, who um, made a joke, oh, you have to do your laundry. And I said, yeah. But he never questioned why I didn't just walk down the sidewalk and go to the laundromat. I put the basket in my car and I drove to the gate and the the gate opened and they let me out. And I literally drove away and um, I was wearing a beeper. And within about a half an hour, because I didn't report to the base for the evening dinner muster, they started beeping me and beeping me and beeping me, and it was bouncing all over the front seat. And they said, you know, return to the int base immediately and all that. And, um, of course, I didn't. And a guy who had been helping me with my uniform projects met me in Los Angeles and literally helped me to escape. He, he put me in a hotel. He drove me to Las Vegas the next day and walked up to the Delta counter, bought me a ticket, and put me on a plane. And I left my car in the Las Vegas airport. Wow. And that that's how I got out. And uh, Peter started calling the next day because I'm sure he knew I would be with my mother in Atlanta, which is exactly where I was. And he said he was going to report me as a missing person. And I refused to take his calls because I knew that if I talked to him, I would break down and come back just like I had done the first two times. Right. And um, I, I can't tell you how difficult it was to just say no and um, not talk to him. And that was the last contact that we had ever had. And we had been married 21 years. So you were not only escaping from this controlling organization, but you had to leave the marriage at the same time and you, but you had been over this with him. He just wasn't ready to see the same things you saw. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. And um, for me, it was the worst time in my life because, you know, I loved my husband and I didn't want to, I didn't want our marriage to split up. I just wanted to return to normalcy. I wanted my life back. I mean, we had a great life um, prior to getting into Scientology. We were in the music business. We were successful. We had some hit songs. We owned a recording studio. I started a, a music publishing company to publish his music. And I had always also been a designer. So 
I wanted that life back because that's who I really was. And Peter had really lost it. He had lost himself. How did you and go for- from that? How did you go from, you know, writing hit songs, having a music uh, business to both signing up to be basically <laughs> indentured servants at the int base for Scientology? <laughs> well, it's, it makes no fucking sense, does it? I mean, you know, I, I describe, this is why I wrote my book, Escaping Scientology, because it's really hard to answer that question um, succinctly. So, you know, I took like 400 pages to answer that question, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to put it into words. You're asking me, repeat your question because there's, it's such a big question. It's hard to zone in on it. I guess, I guess, you know, uh, how did I, I rem- how did I make the choice to go in? I mean, I remember I remember you describing how bad it got. I think at one point you were writing about how you were physically ill. You you know, you've been working 24 hours a day doing some special thing where they uh took you off your regular job and they were making your whole unit like re- what was it? redesign refurbish the mess hall or something. Oh and yeah. The work just made you physically sick. And you just couldn't find a place just to lie down. It was just like so (laughs) awful. And, you know, it it, it led to you finally realizing this this life was not for you. And you went to your husband, Peter, and you tried to talk to him about it. And it was just like talking to a brick wall. And I remember thinking how horrible that must have been. And then, you know, you've just now described how you finally got away. I mean, when we talk, just as an aside, when we're talking about Mark and Claire, for example, there were awful moments where Claire thought Mark had escaped without her and Mark knew that he wouldn't be able to communicate. But ultimately, they both escaped and were reunited, and it's a wonderful story. But Yeah, your story they had a isn't, great story. <laughs> your story isn't like that. I mean, you you had to – this guy just wouldn't wake up. Right. And so you had to escape on your own. And so I guess on the question I'm asking is now you, – you were mentioning that before all of this – um, you know, you guys had some hit songs together and you were published, you had a publishing business and you had a music studio and you, you said your life was great. How did it go from there to becoming these indentured servants? At the yeah. Ladies? Okay. Back to that. Uh, because how did it go from that? Because honestly, 1985, the Portland crusade, uh. Peter and I went to Portland to help the church defend against quote unquote religious discrimination. I mean, we were so brainwashed then we didn't realize what was really going on with the lawsuit with Julie Christofferson, who was suing the church. So we put, you know, all the, we put a whole band together. We filled up a plane with musicians and equipment. We, uh, you know, the plane took us to Portland. We showed up like the troops on the ground, like boots on the ground. There we were defending our church. And it was during those weeks of crusading, concerts in the park, working with Sea Org members who worked 24-7 to support what they believed in. We had never seen or we had never been part of what we considered at the time to be a higher purpose. Uh-huh. And it just, the the whole time in Portland, honestly, that's where we became radicalized. I or see. that's where we're, it's not where it started, but it's really where it peaked. Because it was right after the Portland Crusade, we came back to L.A. and uh, to resume our lives. And we were floundering. We felt like, you know, the only thing we wanted to do was to help Scientology and work for Scientology. We were completely and totally taken in. Wow. And, um, you know, the question is, well, how does somebody become that way? Well, how does anybody get radicalized? I mean, I write about radicalization in my book. And, um, you know, I don't know if this is a good time to talk about that. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But that is what happened. We became radicalized. And, uh, you know, Peter and I literally um, moved out of our home. We moved into the Manor Hotel okay. and uh, downsized all of our furniture. And then the next thing you know, we joined the Sea Org. 
Otherwise so, known, otherwise known as the Hollywood Celebrity Center, right on. Franklin. Otherwise known as the Hollywood Celebrity Center, and thus began the adventure of the Hollywood Celebrity Center. Wow. Well, let me and let me just uh, for those of our newer folks that aren't familiar with Portland, just the one thing I want to point out about it: the reason why Portland was such a big deal, and why all these Scientologists in the West Coast were brought up there to Portland to picket around the courthouse. The reason why that lawsuit in particular was so important to Scientology and freaked out the leaders was that what Julie Christopherson was doing was like Larry Wollersheim in also in Los Angeles around the same time. These two lawsuits were so scary for Scientology because they were suing over Scientology itself being harmful. See, today mm -hmm. we hear about Sea Org workers suing over their, their treatment as workers uh, you know, trafficking, um, and, and then you see some other uh, uh, lawsuits about fraud and harassment. But what made the Christofferson and Wolersheim lawsuits so scary for Scientology was these were former Scientologists saying that Scientology, Scientology's processes themselves, the actual stuff of Scientology, had harmed them. And those two juries agreed, and each brought in verdicts of about $30 million each. Right. So imagine, imagine if anybody who had ever been in Scientology then went to court and said, yeah, this stuff is harmful. I mean, it was a nightmare. And that's exactly. why Scientology fought so hard. They had all you guys go up there, circle the courthouse, and it worked. The judge blinked and uh, decided to uh, vacate the ruling and ultimately, I think she got something like ten thousand dollars or something when she was looking at thirty million. So that yeah. that's that was a major moment in Scientology history. I just want people to understand, and I can understand how for someone like you, that must have been something. It's like we're fighting for the church's survival. We're here together, it was. <laughs> and it must have felt like this. You know, it doesn't get more important than this. It 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 didn't get more important. Um, I mean, the prep at the time. Um, I mean. Peter and I were not, we weren't working for the church yet. We were, we were, right. we were public of Celebrity Center. Right. And so the president of Celebrity Center, as well as executives from Author Services, who were really running the show, were calling us personally and relying on us to put like celebrity and musicians together to go up and support the church. So we were being like relied on, like we were, you know, in charge of this little project of getting people up there. And, you know, it, it became, there wasn't anything more important that became more the most important thing in our lives at the time. Right. So, you know. so then you came back and you got involved with celebrity center. Please tell me about that period when you were there and what you were doing there. You know, that, even in my book, I write, I, I really, really enjoyed, like, I actually loved uh, the activities that I was involved in there because I was all about working with artists and, you know, Peter being a musician, me being um, his assistant, so to speak. Uh, and I myself am, was a designer. I loved what Hubbard wrote about artists, about artists can create a new civilization because artists deal with the level of aesthetics and they can change minds and they can change the world. So, you know, at that point in my life, it was like, Hmm, I like the idea of being a world changer, you know, making the world a, a better place. Um, sure. Sure. You know, who, who wouldn't want civilization without war and insanity and in, in criminality and artists can make a big difference. Um, so that was my crusade. I, I took that up as my own personal crusade. And we started all sorts of artist groups. Uh, we had, I mean, we were filling the place with people. And, you know, the, uh, the people running the place at the time just loved us because we were bringing so many people in. And, um, you know, then our quest became to recruit celebrities into Scientology. Uh, so that's what we worked on. And, you know, I mean, we, we brought a lot of people in. We brought people in from Santana, uh, from, you know, different musicians. Um, 
we failed more than we succeeded, but we were still like really active zealots. We were literally zealots. Uh, and then, you know, I signed my CR contract and then I became, uh, they posted me in an executive position at Celebrity Center. Um, I was the celebrity public secretary. So I was over all the divisions that brought in new people. Uh, and so, you know, we were just had the place hopping. I mean, we were, we were having a great time, but then the reality of Seurig life really set in. And I knew I had made a really bad mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like at the time I was a Seurig member and Peter was not yet. And so, you know, we lived in two different worlds, but, uh, ultimately, they sent me away for executive training. I did what's called the OEC, the Organization Executive Course, where you study all the green volumes and you learn all the Hubbard policies on how to run an organization. And when I got out, they posted me as the commanding officer of the Celebrity Center Network, which wow. at the time, there were 13 celebrity centers around the world, you know, Paris, London. Dusseldorf, Nashville, et cetera. Right. Now the network is like probably less than half of that. But right. when I was the CEO of the network, um, I was just, I never should have taken that job. Uh, but in any case, uh, you know, I, I really didn't want to be an executive. I preferred to work with the arts. And um, anyway, long story short, Peter then joined the Sea Org. David Miscavige personally recruited Peter to sign his Sea Org contract and brought him up to Golden Air Productions to be a gold musician. And so when Peter went up to gold, um, I left Celebrity Center and went up to the Int base with him. Mm. So that's how we migrated over the rainbow, so to speak. Well, let me ask you, when you were with Celebrity Center, um... What was, and you said you, you were trying to recruit people and, and it failed more than you were successful. But let me ask you the question that I always get asked, what's in it for the celebrities? What is the appeal? What are you trying to convince celebrities is the reason that they want to be associated with the celebrity center? What are the things that, that you think sometimes do work? Well, you know, that, that's a great question. Um, a lot of people cannot comprehend what would be the attraction. But you got to picture, okay, let's say that you're an up-and-coming artist, singer, musician, whatever, actor. And you, discuss, you walk into the Celebrity Center, which automatically surrounds you with support personnel. And they love on you. And they tell you, this is your safe place in Hollywood. This is your refuge. This is where you can come when you have troubles, if you need help, if you need a shelter to cry on, if you need a safe space, in addition to, of course, a training in Scientology and you know, becoming an OT, an operating Thetan, moving up the bridge, going clear. So there's this Scientology side of like, you know, what Scientology promises to give you, but it was also a culture. Celebrity Center offered a culture that none of the other organizations of Scientology offered. And, you know, I've described to you what that culture is. Right. And as a matter of fact, in my book, uh, for those people that don't know, it's called Escaping Scientology, an Insider's True Story. My book has chapters that describe what is the Celebrity Center, what did Hubbard, Hubbard intend for celebrities, and how were celebrities treated. So when you think about um, uh, what it offers, I mean, the whole point about offering a safe place, I mean, when you're, when you're an, an up-and-coming artist, musician, actor, whatever, and you're struggling with competition and you're auditioning and, you know, you're not getting uh, cast and you have losses and the competition is so heavy and you, you, you have trouble believing in yourself. 
this is where you came. It was a safe place. It was a refuge. Right. Is, is, it was like, name- come home to mama. We'll take care of you. Can you name one or two of folks that that worked on at the time? Well, for example, um, interesting, uh, after actually from the Portland Crusade, some of the musicians that we brought up there were from Santana's band, okay. um, Michael Carabello and Greg Enrico. Um, now, they were already successful musicians in Santana, but, you know, they wanted to do more. Uh, and be more and make more. And so we got them into Scientology for a little bit. But I think when they saw what was going on and how much it it cost, they didn't want it. Um, Another person we got in was uh, Frank Stallone. Frank Stallone is Sylvester Stallone's brother. Um, We brought Frank up to Portland to be part of the band. And we got him into Scientology um, as a result of, of of all that. Um, we met Sylvester Stallone through Frank because Frank and Peter Schles co-wrote the song to Sylvester's movie, a Rambo first blood part two. And so we met Sylvester in the studio. So we had already gotten Frank into Scientology and we, our goal was to get Sylvester, but we could never get through to him because he was always surrounded by bodyguards. And, um, so that didn't work. Um, The contact was there, but we couldn't really develop it. So Frank was involved in Scientology for a little bit, but, you know, it didn't take long. He caught on with what was going on. He didn't like it, and he left. Um, You know, I mean, there were so many people that that did come in. Uh, Another guy, Greg Raleigh, who was this great musician with um, Santana keyboards. I think he also played for Journey. And his wife, Garnett, we brought her in, and um, she got really involved, and to my knowledge, she's still involved to this day. So, you know, we had our wins, we had our losses. Um, yeah. And what was uh, what were some of the, um, I mean, it seems to me like one of the things that this Hollywood Celebrity Center uses, particularly with these new celebrities to get them interested is the pure of did you find that that was something that you could use to kind of get people interested yeah it was attractive to a lot of people for for um obviously for health reasons you know it it has you know when you first start reading about it it offers some great uh, well it, it has some credibility in terms of you know purifying your system um but once it, it was a good recruitment tool. It's not something that we particularly used. We used more of the artist development, okay. you know, uh, removing blocks to your communication, um, improving your communication so that you could be a better actor or a better musician. So we always went in on, on that, like improving abilities that would directly affect their creative careers. That's what we usually used. Okay. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about is PR. Um, you know, you've mentioned that, that you were definitely involved in that and you must have seen it at the Celebrity Center. One thing that I'm very interested in is how Scientology sort of helps celebrities with, with public relations. And um, did, was that something that you saw? Oh, that is a very sticky subject. Um, that was always a very, very sensitive subject. Uh, of course, when I was there, now this was like, you know, late 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, late 80s. I think I left in um, 89 or 90. Okay. Uh, so the internet was not real prominent yet. But um, the reason I say it's a sensitive subject is because at Celebrity Center, we were, we were relied on to develop celebrities in their case progress, meaning going up the bridge, so that they would become more capable, more able to do public relations, meaning uh, endorse Scientology in public, endorse it in their career, 
endorse it in public, endorse it in the media. And that was our biggest target, our biggest goal. And those of us in executive positions who were responsible for uh, getting celebrities up the bridge, that is what we were pressured for. And so there were very few people who could really speak out in public about their wins in Scientology. One of them was John Travolta back then. One of them was Ann Archer. One of them was Kirstie Alley. There were a handful of people. Um, and so so there was different ways of, of dealing with public relations. One of them, the main one was make celebrities capable of doing PR for Scientology via their careers and their friends. Hmm. Um, the president's office was tasked with bringing celebrities in all the time for like, you know, I um, here, sit on the couch and have a cup of tea and let's talk about who you know. And they would literally strategize uh, who the celebs knew and they would create like little programs. Um, and, you know, those were their... That was that became their mission of wow. how to bring how to bring in other celebrities, uh, and they would strategize. In fact, there was a time when uh, I think it was Sue McClay, Sue Young McClay. Uh, I can't remember her name fully then, but she was she was constantly threatened that if she didn't get this celeb or that celeb to bring in a new friend or to bring in a new person or to set up a book one auditing session. She was constantly threatened with being assigned to the RPF Scientology's prison camp right. because her whole job was to get celebrities to disseminate Scientology. Wow. So when you talk about public relations, um, you know, a celebrity had to be able to talk to other people about Scientology share their wins, tell them why, you know, they should come in. Um, and, and, and back then it used to take a lot because Hubbard had already di- Hubbard died in 86 and Scientology had a lot of bad press at that time. There were bad court cases and Scientology had some really bad PR around that era. So it was really hard, uh, to, to train the celebs to do what we wanted them to do. And, um, but that was what we were tasked with. Now, you know, there's other aspects of public relations too, which is, you know, when things go bad, um, how do, how did the church try to use celebs to fix it? And, um, and that's a whole other can of worms. Well, the reason I the reason I was bringing that up it was that there was some very bad PR for Scientology this week. I was actually um, traveling this weekend and didn't get to uh, react to it immediately, but I wanted to bring it up with you. And that was um, this weekend. Uh, well, just as a you know to back up, remember at the Golden Globes early uh, back last month, the a comedian there cracked a joke about Shelley Miscavige, and that was a huge deal. But it was a comedian that doesn't really, you know, know what he's talking about. Then this right. past this past weekend, Judd, Ap- Judd, Judd Apatow at the Directors Guild Awards um, made some jokes about Tom Cruise, and you know, you know, they were the kind of some of them were kind of the typical thing where he's making fun of the fact that he does his own stunts and that he's not very tall. But <laughs> there were a couple of really pointed. Uh, jabs at him and Scientology in particular. And uh, the reason why it's really interesting with, with Judd in particular is that he has a history with Cruz. And I wanted to remind folks about that. Um, Seth Rogen came out with a book, uh, I don't know, not too long ago. And he wrote about how in 2005, so that's that killer year when Tom kind of was acting as the ambassador for Scientology and argued with Matt Lauer and jumped on Oprah's couch. Right. That, he had, that Seth and Judd were hanging out with Tom and had a meeting. And then at some point, um, Judd brought up this whole thing about, you know, the, the, the public thought that Tom was losing his mind. 
Mm-hmm. And Cruz then said that this was intentional. He said because of uh, that the psyche that's the psychiatry profession was behind it. And Tom said, and they asked him why, and he said because my exposure of their fraud has cost them so much money that they're desperate. They're scrambling and they're doing everything they can to discredit me so I won't hurt sales anymore. And at that point, Seth said, Big Pharma made you jump on Oprah's couch? (laughs) And Cruz responded, they edited it to make it look so much worse than it was. They do that all the time. You should see what they do to my friend Louis Farrakhan. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so (laughs) Seth, Seth Rogen writes about how that was so startling. How could he, you know, forget something like that? So my friend uh, Louis Farrakhan. Wow. Yes, and then and then Judge said, "Well, Farrakhan has said a lot of blatantly anti-Semitic things," and Tom said, "No, he's great." So this is the background that Judd and Seth have with Tom Cruise going back mm-hmm. years, and so that's why I say it's important to keep that in mind. That now you see Judd at the awards saying something like um, where he said that every time Tom Cruise does one of these new stunts, it feels like an ad for Scientology. Scientology. Yeah, I know. And and then he said the, then he said the killer one, he said, the only thing Tom Cruise seems to be afraid of is co-parenting and antidepressants. Antidepressants. I know that was now deep. We, now we know about the antidepressants thing with him and Matt Lauer and all that, but just that, that simple allusion to co-parenting, what is Judd saying there? He's saying he's, it's making a reference to Tom Cruise, basically ditching his daughter, right. which no, nobody ever makes that reference in public. And it's so shocking. Um, and that's why I say these weren't jokes. I mean, this was Judd Apatow really attacking Tom Cruise in a way that Cruise has not been attacked in a long time. Yeah, and those were some serious digs. <laughs> so that's my question for you is, I mean, this seems like a really bad thing for both Tom Cruise and Scientology. You've been behind the scenes. What would you expect Scientology would be doing uh, after you know something like that happened? Well, this is a this is a lot to unpack because there's a lot going on here. Um, First of all, with um, Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen, I mean, you know, they I'll I'll get to that in a second. I I just wanted to mention, I mean, everyone, everyone in Hollywood who works with Cruz or who, you know, is on a professional level with him or even as an observer. You know, they see him, they see his brand. And it's like, how do you react to his brand? Because he is a guy who is now showing up in jokes because he has ditched his daughter. He has basically broken up three marriages. Uh, He supports a cult that is involved in lawsuits for human trafficking, slavery, sexual abuse, and on and on. And this is a guy who who has that side to his brand. That's his values. He supports a group who knowingly does that stuff. And yet, he's a fabulous movie maker. He's a great actor, great director, incredible stunts. He, he seeks perfection. And so on a professional level, his brand is superlative in terms of movie making but when you get down to his personal values his brand he's branded as a vile human being and so to the extent that now jokes are digging in on his personal choices and instead of respecting him for his professional accomplishments what does he get he gets the digs on his personal choices and I think he really deserves that because, you know, his values are at the bottom. He turns a blind eye to crimes and oppression. Uh, and so so that's what I wanted to say about values and his brand, because his brand right. is like a double-edged sword. Right. But in terms of how the church would respond to this, um, okay, there's a lot to that, really. Uh, back in my day, um, 
when Scientology was less prominent in the media, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. if there would be critics, uh, whether it's on in, in a t- television news, uh, a journalist, in a print publication, whatever, any sort of media who would criticize Scientology. I mean, the church goes into automatic, um, you know, automatic gear on what to do. I mean, Mike Rinder has elaborated on this a lot, but I mean, you know, you've got the celebrity side of it. You've got the um, legal side of it. You've got the OSA side of it. But when I was in Celebrity Center and we were responsible for helping celebrities to deal with this, I mean, back in the day, we would have uh, gotten the person in, let's say it was Tom Cruise in his early days. We would have we would have brought him in. We would have sat him on the president's couch. We would have talked him through this over a cup of tea and discussed what happened. And he would share, you know, what he was hurt about or what he was upset about. And then from there, we would design a personal program to get him fixed and repaired. And we would put him into auditing sessions to handle his emotions and his what was called charge. Um, We would... Um, maybe send him to correction for failing to apply certain Hubbard policy on handling um, suppressive persons. Um, That was another thing. Um, Back in the late uh, 90s, or excuse me, late 80s, early 90s, um, there was a course that came out called the PTSSP course, Potential Mm -hmm. Trouble Source Suppressive Person course. Confronting and Handling Suppression. And everybody at the Celebrity Center was made to do this course. All the staff and all the public had to do this course, and they had to do a course called the Professional TRs course. And the whole point was was to train people to confront and handle suppression because that is, you know, like, Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen, you know, the church would automatically interpret them as, or label them as enemies. And when you're an enemy of the church, you get dealt with a certain way. Um, You're attacked, you're maybe PIs after you, you're investigated, uh, noisy investigations, people dig up dirt on you, they publish the dirt in uh, whatever, their own websites or publications. You know, Scientology has a very precisely orchestrated set of policies written by L. Ron Hubbard that you don't question, you just do, and you go into attack mode of critics like that. So These days, so, you know, sorry. So, what? so well, just so what, I, what I'm hearing is that based on the way things were handled when you were there, you would expect two different things. One, crews would be brought in for some kind of correction or whatever, talking to about, you know, why are you being attacked by these people publicly and and maybe find some kind of program for him at the same time that the usual thuggish thing would be turned on against Judd and Seth, which that's, I hadn't thought about that. I I think we're going to need to keep an eye out. I would assume uh, on the first half of the program, we're going to see Cruz and Judge show up somewhere before too long, acting like buddy buddy to make sure everyone realizes everything was fun and light. But uh, it, it will be interesting to see if maybe Scientology doesn't turn out its thugs on these guys. And who knows, maybe suddenly Judd Apatow will find himself in a little bit of a scandal before too yeah. long. You know, this yeah. is how it works. I think it's worth keeping an eye on, you know, yeah, because, yeah. I mean, he was uh, front and center at Directors Guild. I mean, you know, when you think about it, this kind of thing used to be, um, you know, back in the late 80s when I was an executive there, when if this sort of thing happened, I mean, it created explosions within the executive structure. I mean, Oso would you know, COB, RTC, the whole church would rally to create programs to destroy that critic. Wow. Um, and, and, and not, you know, not hold anything back 
to bring down critics of Scientology. I mean, on a smaller scale, much smaller scale, look at what Scientology is doing right now to Mark Headley. <laughs> Mark Headley is, uh, he was a former Sea Org member who left uh, some years ago, I think around 2010 or so, I'm not sure, but uh, Mark Headley is a very successful audio visual, he owns an audio visual company yeah. and he's very successful. He has clients all around the country. And right now, Scientology is um, has got the list of all of Mark's clients and has sent letters to all of Mark Headley's clients defaming him in the letter and including a picture of him drunk laying on a sidewalk right. and, and saying, is this the kind of person that you want to entrust your business with? And so they're attempting to destroy his company currently. This is 2023. I mean, the photo that they're sending around of him was from 2006. Yeah. You know, when he first got out and he got drunk one night on his birthday. He had too many rum and Cokes. And so, but that's, you know, Mike Render did a great job explaining that's called a noisy investigation and they're doing that because L. Ron Hubbard says to do it. They don't think about, you know, how ridiculous they're making themselves look. Sending letters to clients about Mark's drunkenness in 2006. Are you kidding me? But this is lunacy. But, but that's the kind of thing that, you know, if, if Rogan or what, what's his name? Uh, Judd. Uh, you know, find themselves all of a sudden getting uh, funny looks from people or, you know, saying, hey, you know, did you do this back in 20 years right. ago? Right. You know what no, I mean? It's, it's like, that's the kind of. Yeah, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. It might happen. And it's uh, kind of lunacy that could happen. Right. No, we've, I, you know, I remember uh, South Park, for example, again, we're going back to the mid 2000s, but. When South Park did its amazing episode about uh, Xenu and everything, you would think Scientology would just oh, forget about it, but they didn't. They actually tried to get a mole into the into the South Park offices, and uh, we covered all that back then. I mean, Scientology, and you're right. The reason why they react that way is that L. Ron Hubbard said to do that in mm -hmm. policies he wrote in the 50s and 60s and they can't change them he's gone now so they just keep following the same playbook over and over it's crazy yeah they follow the same playbook it makes no sense to any normal person it's pure lunacy but because l ron hubbard said to do it that's why they do it yeah incredible but you know hubbard and hubbard and like david miscavige I mean, we all know, those of us familiar, we know they're, they're the master manipulators, the master gaslighters. And, you know, I mean, they turn out people who become excellent at manipulating other people because that's what Scientology teaches you to do. Um, I mean, to bring up a very, very old example, think about Charles Manson who, uh, you know, took what he learned and he taught other people to manip he manipulated people to believe that they should murder who he said to murder. So they did that. Um, that's an extreme example, but I mean, think about how Tom Cruise, you know, after you and I originally talked about this topic, I was thinking about how Tom Cruise has been radicalized and um, yeah, he makes a choice to stay in. But honestly, I understand radicalization, and I wrote about it in my book. And I think about Cruz, how he's radicalized. And, you know, even though he tried to recruit Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen some years ago, he's tried to recruit a lot of people into Scientology. Yeah. Fact is, he's, he is such a radicalized guy. Who knows what he will do to them? Well, that's something that I try to bring up with people because, you know, the tabloids love this story about how Tom really wants to get out, but they're blackmailing him or he's about to get out and reunite with. Kim. I don't know where they get this story. 
because I, I'm glad you're using the word radicalized because that's exactly what happened to Tom Cruise years and years ago. And mm-hmm. he, you know, there was a brief moment in late 2004, early 2005, when both Miscavige and Tom Cruise thought it might be a good idea to actually make him a more vocal ambassador for mm-hmm. Scientology. And that was disastrous. And so they stopped doing that. But that doesn't mean he's any less radical because, I mean, you know, one of the things is, you know, celebrities get to break the rules. And so if Tom Cruise wanted to, he could have kept seeing Surrey this whole time. Nobody would ever dare to tell, even David Miscavige would not dare to tell Tom Cruise, his number one celebrity, that he could not see his daughter. So the question is then is why? Did Tom choose Scientology over Surrey if nobody at Scientology was forcing him to, to make that choice? And I think you've hit on it. It's that he's been so radicalized that mm-hmm. Scientology is the number one thing in his life, even over his own daughter. And, you know, I've told so many reporters this over the last, I don't know, five years or so, Karen. They will ask me why, you know, what's going on there. And I keep telling them, you know, because they keep saying, oh, but Scientology must be keeping him away. And I'm like, they can't. He's a celebrity. If he mm-hmm. wanted to, he could see her. So why doesn't he? I try to get these reporters to think about that and to ask the question, why did Tom choose Scientology over his daughter? And you've got the answer. He's been radicalized. and But the people that deal with him, uh, the reporters and stuff, don't dare ask that question. And that's why I think it's such a big deal that even though it was a little subtle and it was just one word, co-parenting, that Judd Apatow used in his you know thing at the Directors Guild, that was big. That was really big because this is a celebrity who knows Tom Cruise. It's huge. Yeah, yeah, it's really huge. Well, you know, think about it. You know, I said Cruise has been radicalized. When When you're radicalized... You don't know that you're radicalized. Oh, that's a good point. When I was radicalized, I didn't know I was radicalized. Um, but let's let's just look at Cruz's life. I mean, he came in married to Mimi Rogers. And the church right. didn't want him to stay married to Mimi Rogers because right. her father was a former mission holder who was not in good graces with the church. Right. So they manipulate, they successfully manipulated him to divorce Mimi but on the other hand he had also met Nicole so that had Nicole Kidman so that had something to do with it as well but the point is is at that point they manipulated him into that divorce but like I said it worked in his favor he married Nicole so he's married to Nicole Kidman for what six years and you know what's that 10 years 10 years and I don't know all the ins and outs of it. I, I mean, I knew that she didn't. I was at the end base when Tom and Nicole would come up for training and auditing. And I had heard that, you know, she wasn't as into it as he was. She had issues. She didn't want the kids raised as Scientologists later. So, you know, there were various things. But let's look at it. I mean, David Miscavige um, had everything to do with manipulating Tom to divorce Nicole. Mm-hmm. So there were, but how could a man who is as self-contained as he is, how could he be so manipulated? Yeah. Because he was radicalized. Right. So he divorced Nicole. Um, and then, you know, he then divorces Katie Holmes. So the guy's family life is very unsuccessful, but I really believe it has to do with being radicalized. And, you know, I, I wrote about this in my book because for me, radicalization was a really huge topic. And can I just read a couple of words yeah, here? Yeah, please do. Um, you know, I wrote that, um, you know, at a certain point, I started to see that Sea Org members are the foot soldiers for a utopian cause, a slave, a slave labor workforce that increases Scientology's wealth while the staff live in impoverished conditions 
comply to unthinkable demands without question, oftentimes within inhumane conditions. Why is it? Why did we do that? Because we were radicalized. And I said, Scientology's system demands secrecy, requires unquestioning obedience to a messianic leader, requires loyalty to the group above all else, and requires a devout belief in the special power of Scientology technology. That's what being radicalized is. Mm -hmm. That's like the Oath Keepers. That's like ISIS. That's like jihadists. That's radicalization. And, you know, in my book, I mentioned John Atak's book, uh, Opening Minds, which came out in 2016, I believe. That book describes radicalization, and uh, I'll read this to you real quick, describes radicalization as the systematic use of thought reform to divide people from other people who they come to believe should be destroyed or hated. And that is the whole creation of the us and them culture between Scientology and non-Scientologists or enemies of Scientology. And, you know, I write about this. Uh, The Mm -hmm. us and them culture is created by Scientology. We're isolated from general society. We learn to hate a long list of enemies. We agree to radical living conditions. We couldn't get pregnant. We had abortions. I mean, or couldn't get married at all. That's radicalization, you yeah. know, and, and, and Cruz is radicalized. He's an independent individual, but he's a radicalized Scientologist. I, I totally agree. And I, that's, you know, I've tried to explain, people will say to me, how could Tom Cruise believe in this kind of an organization? And I always say, he can't understand why you haven't joined. Right. You know, it's 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 like, you know, it's it's this radical point of view he's got that that this is a prison planet. Scientology is the only thing that's going to save this planet. And David Miscavige is the most important person on on the planet today. If you buy into those things, then you can see why he's he's been doing what he's doing and why he won't say anything about, you know, if Tom Cruise is I mean, if uh, David Miscavige is his best friend, why will he never say anything about his best friend's wife? And where she's been right. for 17 years. Why yeah. won't he see his own daughter? I mean, these are the things that a radicalized Scientologist does. And that's what people need to understand about Cruz is he's as dedicated today as he ever was. I agree with you. I mean, it's it's uh, it's hard to wrap your head around. And uh, I do believe a person who is radicalized can come out of it uh I did. Well, let's. Uh, we got a few minutes left. Why don't you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, your journey more lately and how you're doing, and and then once again we'll tell people about the book. Okay. Well, you know, how does a person become unradicalized? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it's like, you know, for me, I was in a very unique position at the time. I was doing. In like the middle 90s, I was doing projects for David and Shelley Miscavige, uniform and staff image projects. I was I was going around the world doing this at Sea Org bases. Yeah. And while I was traveling and I would go, I would see Scientology around the world. It opened my eyes to the truth. I saw people living in, in poverty conditions who worked for Scientology. While at the end base, we were making millions a week. Um, it opened my eyes. I mean, yes, I was radicalized, but I mean, I think my own personal values clashed. It's it's a matter of right and wrong. Yeah. And uh, I I think my own personal values kind of began to, they had been oppressed for so long by Scientology beliefs that when I was traveling, I, I got some space. I was connected with the real world. Um, and I really believe that that's what helped to open my eyes. That, and also being at the end base and seeing horrific stuff going on uh, that Miscavige and some of the other leadership were responsible for, such as staff abuse uh, and on and on. Um, 
and uh, for me, it that that's what cracked through. That's that's really what cracked it through, and that and my desire to get my life back. Now, you know, somebody could say to me, "Well, then you weren't really fully radicalized, were you? Because if you were, you wouldn't consider these things." Well, I don't agree with that because I think a person who has a soul and a conscience, as long as you're not a sociopath or a dyed-in-the-wool narcissist, I think that, you know, your personal values, your sense of right and wrong, uh, and also your own sanity is what can get you out. I really believe that that's what, like, all the people that started to leave the exodus from the int base from, like, 2006, 2010 is when the most people left. That's when uh, Leah Remini left, Mike Rinder left, uh, Mark Headley left, Mark and Claire. A lot of people left because right. they were seeing so much abuse at the end base and actual psychotic uh, sickness. I, I mean, the shit that Miss Scavage was doing to people, I mean, you know, it finally cracked through. They were finally able to question what they believed about Scientology. Um, and interesting, you compare that to somebody like Tom Cruise, who has been coddled and protected and supported and defended. He has never, you know, he's never had, uh, I mean, how would I know? I don't know him personally. I don't live at his household. But he hasn't encountered the kind of stuff that, that we did. I don't know right. how else to explain it, but I just don't believe he's going to break through. I mean, if he's gone this long separated from his daughter, what in the yeah. world would ever cause him to step away? Well, maybe that's what Judd was trying to do. Maybe Judd's trying to do him a favor. You know, who knows? I mean, that could be the knock. I don't know. Maybe if that could be a knock that sort of helps steer him in the right direction. Or the church will come back hard on, on those two guys. You know, it, that reminds me of a conversation that I had with my then husband, Peter Schles. We were on a rare leave of absence for three days because we convinced our seniors to let us go to a family reunion because we hadn't seen our family in so long, years, maybe 10. So we had a couple of days off. And we flew into Atlanta to see my family. And then we rented a car and drove up to the Smoky Mountains. And there we were in a convertible. I put this story in my book. And it was raining. And we were singing to the radio and having so much fun. And there we were free. And we had stepped away from Sea Org life for three days. And I brought up to Peter, I said, you know, we can have our life back again. It can feel like this. Wow. And he thought about it for a minute. And it didn't take more than a minute. And his whole face kind of got tight and kind of twisted. And he said, no fucking way. We are loyal Sea Org members. And I could never deal with Marty Rathbun coming after me with an e-meter. Oh, man. That's so amazing. Peter was steeped in fear. He yeah. was steeped in fear to pursue his own thoughts. Right. He wasn't free enough to think for himself or to make a choice like that. So, you know, it's a, it's it's hard to understand why about Cruz, but I really believe that that's it. Yeah, I think you're right. Hey, give us that title again so people can pick up a copy if they don't have one already. Yeah, uh, the book is Escaping Scientology, An Insider's True Story. And it's under, my name is the author, Karen Schles Presley. Uh, it is on Amazon. And right. you can get it Kindle or hard copy. Well, thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for joining me on this. And uh, I, I think I have learned a little more about what's keeping Cruz in. And uh, 
you know, it's been a big week for him. I don't know if it's going to have any effect, but I, I'm glad you agree with me that uh, that's some pretty harsh hits he took. I do. And you know what, Tony? I think you made a good point about, about Judd Apatow's comment about Surrey. Because even a guy who's totally, totally radicalized like Tom Cruise is, it might only take one thing to break through that. Yeah. And maybe maybe Judd's comment will do that. Let's hope. Let's hope. Okay, Karen. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Talk to you later. Tony, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Now I will go down in Bunker Town again, again, again. To witness history. Ride the storm. Wait to see how reckoning.